Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this is a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Dark Knight Rises, Christopher Nolan's last chapter to his Batman trilogy. Joining me from the Slate Bureau, I love saying Bureau, the Slate DC Bureau is Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hi. And Dan, you are a senior editor at Slate. That's me. You? Also, I am I am now deaf due to The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> so this is being interpreted for you? That's correct. I have my assistant here interpreting everything. And then I will speak when I have a chance. So I'm eager, very eager to know what you think of this movie. Um, This is obviously a movie that's been awaited for years, very heavily hyped. Um, You know, the whole release is surrounded by this sort of constant hum. I mean, more like a a roar of marketing at all times. And as you say, the movie itself is roaringly loud. So um, can you can you pull yourself out of the, the pit and tell me what you thought? Um, I'll drag myself by my fingernails out of the pit because now I finally fear death. Uh, So um, I don't hate it enough to have people send me death threats, um, but I don't love it nearly as much as I love The Dark Knight. So that you'll only be threatened with grievous bodily harm, basically. That's correct. That's correct. I'll be threatened with severe back injuries that lead to vertebrae sticking out of the back of my skin. (laughs) Uh, FYI, everyone, there will be spoilers in the spoiler special. Yes. In fact, our... our, um in fact, our engineer, Chris Wade, may be ducking out because he himself is very curious about The Dark Knight Rises and doesn't want it to be spoiled by taping the spoiler. So right. um, so let's start from, okay, first of all, as you were saying before we started taping, The Dark Knight Rises sort of requires you to have seen the two previous chapters of the trilogy. More than a lot of third chapters of the trilogy, it's not really standalone story-wise, right? Which could make it pretty incomprehensible if you either haven't seen or don't remember Nolan's first two films, Batman Begins and, and The Dark Knight. Right. So, uh, yeah. So I saw Batman Begins when it came out, which, according to this, was in 2005, which was a legitimately long time ago. Um, and uh, and, a, and a good memory of some of the plot points of that movie is will be really useful to people trying to make sense of especially the villains backstories in um, The Dark Knight Rises, the the. The villain, the primary villain in this movie is Bane. Um, he's played by Tom Hardy, uh, although he's more or less unrecognizable as his beautiful lips are forever hidden behind this weird sort of Darth Vader-esque mouth mask. Um, I didn't know he you re- felt strongly about Tom Hardy's lips, Dan. He has beautiful lips. Um, but he, uh, he looks a lot like the way that Darth Vader looks in Return of the Jedi after they take the top half of his helmet off. Like he's bald and you can see his eyes and he's really pale and then he has this thing over his mouth um, that that in the end we find out is sort of keeping him alive slash keeping the pain from becoming too great. Um, can I jump in and say something about the mask as long as you mentioned it? I really, yeah. really hate the design and use of and dependence on the mask in this movie. Not that you know it can't be scary for a villain to be masked, and I'm sure that's part of the character. I'm sure that's part of how the character was drawn in the comics. I still think that there could have been... <clears throat> I still think that there could have been some kind of design decision that made Tom Hardy's face a little bit more visible or at least had an unveiling moment, which Darth Darth Vader gets, right? I mean, he's he's covered up. I would say 60 or greater percent of his face is covered up, right? It's not just his nose and mouth. It's like his forehead you can't see. All you can see are these two little eyes off to the side, and you almost, as you say, don't know it's Tom Hardy under there. And to me, it sort of seemed like a waste of a really good actor. 
Yeah, I thought so too. And I mean, it sort of points to in the end what is the real problem with this movie to me as compared to The Dark Knight, which is which is both an, an, an acting problem, though not really Tom Hardy's fault, uh, no. and also a structure problem, which is that Bane is just not as good of a villain as the Joker was. And his plan is not particularly tricky, although there is one twist at the end. His motives are not particularly uh, sort of philosophically interesting the way the Jokers were. And his modus operandi is not based the way the Jokers was in The Dark Knight on unbelievable jaw-dropping trick dropping trickery and twists. There were so many moments in The Dark Knight where I had no idea what was coming next. And then the thing that came next, always instigated by the Joker, was a huge and delightful surprise. Like an evil surprise, but a delightful surprise. And there are precious few of those moments in The Dark Knight Rises, simply because Bane is a more straightforward villain. Even the fights between him and Batman are just like big, horrible slugfests where Bane in the first fight between them just beats the shit out of Batman. And in the second fight between them, Batman, because he's been inspired by love of his city, beats the shit out of Bane. Like there's no even sort of visual surprise to those battles. Um, Even the bat weapons are functionally useless against Bane. It's just people punching each other. And that to me was like a metaphor for this whole movie. This whole movie is one side landing gigantic punches and then the other side landing gigantic punches and then it's over with a big nuclear explosion. Yeah, this is definitely a movie about about brute force. And I kind of get that that's what Bane is as a villain and that's sort of what he represents, but that is a far less visually interesting thing. And, And yet another reason to unmask the character at some point or expose him. He is given a backstory at the end that we'll get to, but I felt like it was too little too late and a little bit too much of a sob story. But so let's go through where we are at the beginning of this movie. The Dark Knight Rises begins eight years after the last movie left off, right? Right, and Batman has taken the fall for the death of Harvey Dent and for the things that Harvey Dent as Two-Face did at the end of... at the end of The Dark Knight. And those who don't remember, Harvey Dent was played by Aaron Eckhart. He had been the DA in Gotham City um, and had been a, a sort of a tough-on-crime DA who made his name fighting uh, organized crime. But then he, uh, he the Joker, um, caused an explosion which burned off half his face and drove him insane uh, and killed Batman's girlfriend and also the woman that he, that Harvey Dent was crazy about, um, Rachel Dawes. And... Uh, and he went crazy and turned into Two-Face and killed a bunch of people and um, and almost killed Commissioner Gordon's son until Batman saved him. Anyways, Batman took the fall. His Batman's and Commissioner Gordon's feeling was that it's better to have Batman, someone who the city already sort of mistrusted, take the fall for those crimes than it was for the people to know that Harvey Dent, their great paragon of decency, had turned evil. And so eight years later, we're in the aftermath of that. The Dent laws have been passed in the aftermath of Dent's death, which give the police greater power to imprison criminals. There's sort, sort of the Patriot Act, right? In fact, I think right, they call it, it the Dent Act. Right. Right. Yes, it's basically the Patriot Act, um, named after, but named after Harvey, and given uh, the given giving police greater powers to detain criminals. Maybe it suspends habeas corpus. It's not clear, but the point of it is that it's a tool that the police, including Commissioner Gordon, have used to basically destroy organized crime. There's crime in the city, but there's no organized crime, as far as anyone knows. But um, as the movie opens, Bane. Um, 
captures, escapes from custody and captures this nuclear physicist who he needs for his nefarious plan, which takes him to God. And we should add a really impressive air battle, I thought. I mean, the movie starts off big with this really impossible seeming air battle that I think is essentially not CGI. I think a lot of it really is real air stunts. Yes, it's uh, it's one plane being hijacked by another plane from outside of it. And then broken apart, ripped into pieces, and dropped on the ground while people from it are pulled out at the last minute. Uh, It's very impressive and shot in IMAX, as is a substantial portion of this movie. Uh, As usual with Christopher Nolan, the things in IMAX are unbelievable and jaw-dropping and beautiful, and the shots of the city, of Gotham City, and the shots of these stunts and these battles are quite amazing to see on a big, gigantic IMAX screen. I didn't even see it in IMAX, and I want to now, but I love when he works in grand scope. I think that that's what Nolan is best at. I think it's when he, he gets intimate and has people in a room talking to each other that things are less interesting, and there's a heck of a lot of that in The Dark Knight Right, Rises, but. and in fact, a huge amount of this movie takes place in the sewers underneath Gotham, which are extremely IMAX unfriendly, and I don't know why you would even make that choice if you're Christopher Nolan, but so it turns out that Bane is uh, is sort of building an army and um, building a revolution, a rebellion underneath the streets of Gotham, and it's all based around this fusion reactor that Wayne Industries sunk a huge proportion of its R&D funds into, um, but then shut down when Bruce Wayne discovered that the fusion reactor he'd spent all this, all these years and all this money building could be weaponized, could be turned into an atomic bomb. And of course, that's Bane's plan, to turn this fusion reactor into an atomic bomb. And the se- entire second act and most of the third act of the movie takes place um, in an occupied Gotham, basically. And I use occupy... Uh, intentionally in that there are specific uh, references made, as you point out in your review, Dana, to the Occupy movement and to this notion of rebellion, the 99% rebellion against the 1%. And Bain uses that to – uses th- that sort of uh, – rebellious spirit to take over Gotham, to seal it from the outside world, and to sick the poor and downtrodden and also the criminal class on the rich and wealthy of Gotham and put them into show trials. I wish I had seen a little bit more. I mean, given that this movie wants to posit a dystopian politics, right, and and a whole system, I really wish there had been a little bit more about how Bane and his army did that, right? Because the first time that we see the public, the Gotham citizens become aware of them, they're doing this horrible thing. They're planting bombs randomly throughout the city, and then they they go to a football game and explode the entire field And I should say, I think, the movie's most spectacular visual set piece of all. And so why do people then listen when he's sort of, by sowing this discord, tries to turn the 99% against the 1%. Do you see what I mean? I mean, what kind of a political organizer is Bane? I would have loved one scene that let us see how he took that next step. Right, like I, like Bane in a room with a bunch of community board leaders <laughs> explaining carefully why what he, his ideas were the best for Gotham. Right, no, right. I don't get with it either. a box either. of donuts like on the boardroom table. Right, right. No, I didn't get it either. I didn't, and so it's unclear from the movie whether the, so there's these, all these scenes of like, people dr- Dragging the rich out of their whatever the Gotham equivalent of Park Avenue apartments are. And, you know, as you say in your review, don't wear a fur coat if you're about to be uprised against. Right. It just makes it easier to drag down the street. That vision of class war is literally just hang out outside an awning doorman building on Park Avenue until somebody in a fur coat comes out and then punch them and take their suitcase. Right. I did like that the doormen also are uh, rise up against their masters. But so that's the only scene you get where you get a sense of who it is who's actually doing the uprising. Is it just the criminals? 
criminals who Bain frees from prison, the, the 1,000 criminals who've been put in there by the Dent Act? Or is it actually like ordinary working people, which would be hard to imagine to me. It's hard to imagine that even the, mis- the most dystopian of movies could actually believe that when you have a criminal in your midst who just blew up huge chunks of your city and killed tons of people, that if you were just like – a steam, you know, a pipe fitter who lives in the Gotham equivalent of Queens, would you really like march to Park Avenue and and arrest every rich person you could see and put them on trial? Or would you like hole up in your house and protect your kids? Yeah, see, this is something that I don't like about this movie's attempt to, to, to cast the net wider and sort of have a, have a philosophical or political canvas of some kind that it paints on. I mean, I admire that it's a superhero movie that tries to do that. But ultimately, I don't think Nolan and his brother, Jonathan Nolan, who co-wrote the screenplay, really care about those these questions that we're asking. I think they just sort of want to create a dystopic, hellish vision of, of Gotham City, and they, you know, throw everything with the kitchen sink in there. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it's it's brutally effective in the same way that Bane as a villain is brutally effective in beating the shit out of people. Like, those images have power. The image, the image of a bunch of people marching down a street and pulling wealthy people out of their homes, that has power. Those images of the of the show trials that they put on for the rich of Gotham with um, uh, with the Scarecrow, actually, the villain from the first movie. Right, Killian Murphy. Silly, yeah, mm-hmm. Killian Murphy. Um, with him as the as the hanging judge, the slightly crazy hanging judge. And then and then the vil, the 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 rich of Gotham being sent into exile, which is to say forced to walk across a frozen river until the ice breaks and they plunge to their deaths. Like those are powerful images and powerful scenes, but you're right that the ideas behind them are totally inchoate and don't actually make sense if you think about them for more than like a second. So let's, uh, let's take a break and, um, and uh, talk about our sponsor. Please take it away, Dana. And then I'll talk about the book that I've picked out at audible. So as usual, the, so as usual, the spoiler special is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, which is the leading provider of digital spoken audio content on the web. They have over 100,000 titles, which you can play on nearly any device. And we have a recommendation on Audible today that's, that's connected to Batman. Dan, you want to take it away? So uh, we haven't even talked yet about the character of Alfred, played by Michael Caine, who's, uh, who's Bruce Wayne's butler. In fact, we barely talked about Batman. I guess we'll do that in the second half. Uh, but um, uh, Michael Caine actually gives a really great performance in this movie. He um, spends a lot of the movie trying to talk Bruce Wayne out of returning as Batman and then actually abandoning him when he does. And um, He's my favorite thing. The only mo- moment that I got choked up in this whole movie was when Michael Caine was trying to convince Bruce to give it up. Yeah, and he's really good. I mean, Michael Caine phones it in a lot because he's Michael Caine, and why shouldn't he? He's, he's earned that. But he really is great in this movie, and it made me think that uh, I, how much I love Michael Caine's voice and his personality. Um, as Dana pointed out to me before we um, started taping, he's a great Twitter personality. He's great on talk shows. He grew up dirt poor and, uh, and just loves being being rich in the way that you and I would just love being rich. He doesn't have any of the problems of rich people. He just loves it. So I'm going to I'm going to recommend on Audible Michael Caine's autobiography, The Elephant to Hollywood, narrated by Sir Michael Caine. Um, it's 10 hours of Michael Caineian goodness, I assume saying things like I buried enough members of the Wayne family. Uh, and uh, he's fantastic. A- and these 
these memoirs, uh, I've read sections of them, and I know that they are just like his appearances on talk shows. They are great stories. He really doesn't hold anything back, and he has a great and infectious joy at all the things that you and I would also love if we were rich and famous, like the five mansions or flying off to wherever we want to at a moment's notice. Oh, I love it. I love his whole life story that he was born Maurice Micklewhite, son of a fishmonger. <laughs> he was dirt poor. That sounds like great listening. Okay, so and so you can find it at audiblepodcast.com. We have a special offer with Audible where you can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at our URL, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So let's talk about Batman because we, in fact, have not really talked about him and his his particular arc through this movie. So at the beginning of the movie, um, you know, Batman is an outcast, having been blamed for the death of Harvey Dent. He's hung up the cape and cowl. He hasn't made an appearance in eight years, and Bruce Wayne has barely made an appearance. He's a, he's a recluse. People talk about him as if he's Howard Hughes with long fingernails and peeing into jars. And he um, has a mysterious also limp that goes away, right? I mean, we follow pretty well, closely the, the rehabilitation of, of, of his body, Bruce Wayne's body later on when he's broken down by Bane. But at the beginning, he's got this, you know, sort of Howard Howard Hughesian recluse's limp, and then it just kind of mysteriously disappears. We see him going to the hospital, and the doctor tells him that he literally has no cartilage left in his knees or elbows, uh, and, and and hugely scarred kidneys from all the kidney shots he's taken. Um, but yeah, and we get like I think we like see him like doing a push up or something in Wayne Manor to reprep for being Batman again. But um, but anyways, he he's returned. Tired and he's he is not interested. He's not running the business anymore. So Wayne Industries has lost a lot of money on this fusion project and hasn't gained it back. The charities that Wayne Industries has supported have sort of fallen by the wayside. But um, the re- the return of Bane um, has sort of brings him out of retirement, um, and uh, and he joins the battle against Bane in Act Two, which leads Alfred to leave him. Uh, but he's doing it all as an outlaw because Batman is still officially persona non grata in Gotham. And he, uh, the other thing that seems to spur him into action is the entry into his life of the Catwoman, Selina Kyle, who's played by Anne Hathaway. You want to talk about her a little bit? Oh yeah, she's she's definitely. I think she brings something to this universe that it badly needs, which is sort of lightheartedness and sexiness and, and wit. I really loved her in the movie. I mean, I think she's a little bit marginal to the proceedings. It's not She's not the main romantic interest, right? There's a little bit of sexual tension between her and Batman, but we'll get to Marion Cotillard. She's sort of the main love interest in this movie. And I feel like Catwoman is a little bit of a decorate, too much of a decoration story-wise, but Anne Hathaway is fantastic. She's really great. I mean, so her arc is that she's a sort of down-on-her-luck cat burglar with great skills, but who's in debt to the wrong people. And she gets the job from one of Bane's henchmen to get Bruce Wayne's fingerprints because Bane has this whole plan to uh, to bankrupt Bruce Wayne um, and uh, and while also wreaking havoc on the Gotham Stock Exchange. Uh, but uh, but so they inter- they intersect in that way and their interactions are pretty fun and lively and there's this great moment, what my favorite moment in the movie I think, in which. Batman and Catwoman are talking, although she's never named as Catwoman. Batman and Selina Kyle are talking on a roof, and the police are hunting for them both. And uh, and he's talking to her, and they're having this charge conversation. And then a police helicopter flies over them, and he looks up at the light, and he looks back down, and she's gone. And he goes, huh, so that's what that's like. Which is great. It's a great moment because that is, of course, what Batman does to everyone all the time. He disappears in the middle of conversations. Um, And, of course, it makes no sense that he says it out loud in the Batman voice. Why would he do that? Why would he not just say it in Bruce Wayne's voice when no one's there? But it's still a great – it's like a joke, which this movie direly needs. 
Um, so yeah, I agree that she has a lot of levity to the proceedings, even if in terms of the actual plot, she's mostly just there as added muscle and to drive the bat cycle, which she inexplicably knows how to drive, having never set foot on it before in her life. <laughs> Um, but uh, but she's great, and and so the you know the movie traces Batman's return, um, and his rising, you know, as the plot as the title of the movie suggests. But then Bane beats the shit out of him and imprisons him in this prison out in the desert. Um, and so the uh, the whole second act of the movie is Batman in this prison, or maybe it's the third act. I lost track. This movie is really yeah, long. This movie has like five acts anyway. Yeah, I guess that's true. It has it has a seven act structure, um, the fabled seven act structure. But so he ends up in this deep dark prison pit with all these other prisoners who've been there for life. Guantanamo has, allegory, right? Okay. Yes. Uh, if Guantanamo was an actual pit in the desert instead of just a metaphorical pit, um, he's stuck there with all these prisoners. He rehabilitates himself because he knows what's happening in Gotham because there's a TV in this hole in the desert. Um, and uh, and he eventually fa- faces his fear, embraces his fear of death. There's a very and, sort of, can I just observe, a very kind of yeah. Oprah-esque spiritual narrative to this whole pit in the desert part, right? I mean, suddenly the movie becomes about, about sort of Batman's journey within himself or something. And I found that this part of the movie really, really dull. As soon as we got to the pit, oh, yeah. I was just like, get me out of this pit. We know that he's going to eventually conquer his fear of death or find his fear of death or whatever the wise other guy in the prison tells him he's supposed to do and get out of the prison and go conquer Banes. And why doesn't he do it? Right. God, it takes so fucking long. He, he, like, he has to fail twice trying to climb the wall of the pit. And yes, it takes forever. And, and of course, there's no... So, I mean, it's not like we think he's going to stay in the pit forever. So, of course, we know he's going to get out. I mean, and that is one of the problems with this movie that sort of goes back to what I was talking about before. It just doesn't have the twists. And, it has one big twist. But aside from that, the action and plot of the movie sort of just plods along in a way that is not particularly surprising. The characters who you think are good are good, and the characters who you think are bad are bad. And there's one character who you think is good who turns out bad, and it's Marion Cotillard, so let's talk about her. Oh, yeah. Let's let's spoil that. That seems an important spoiler. So, as we mentioned, Selena Kyle, the Catwoman, is not really the romantic interest. That is the uh, Marion Cotillard character, Miranda Tate, who's a fellow wealthy philanthropist who, I guess, sits on the board of... of Wayne, Wayne Industries, Industries yeah. and is also involved with this project of the clean energy project, right, that eventually is going to be turned into the into the nuclear weapon by, by Bane. So they have this romance that sort of is at slow boil throughout the beginning of the movie. He's kind of slowly coming out of his shell and starting to fall in love with her again. And then as things are really coming to a head, and essentially it's, you know, the, the climactic battle for, for Gotham at the end, we suddenly discover that um, the Marion Cotillard character is actually... Raz al Ghul's daughter. Remember Raz al Ghul? Maybe you don't. It was Liam Neeson in the first movie. Uh, Who appears here in flashback only, right? I think it's flashback yes, only. Yes, and so we've been led throughout much of the movie to believe that Bane is Raz al Ghul's son, who grew up in this horrible prison um, and then finally escaped uh, and rejoined Raz al Ghul to be trained by him in the same way that Bruce Wayne was trained by him, uh, but then eventually rebelled against him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out at the very, very end that uh, that Miranda Tate is in fact Raz al Ghul's daughter, um, who is an actual DC Comics character, as our producer knows, our producer Chris Wade knows. Um, uh, I forget her actual name. It is, in fact, mentioned in the movie. Talia al Ghul. Talia al Ghul, yes. It is mentioned (laughs) very briefly in the movie. And she, at the very end of the movie, um, turns into the big bad. You know, Bruce Wayne... Uh, Batman has a fight against Bane and he defeats him, but then he's stabbed in the back. Can I also say that Bane's death is incredibly anticlimactic? 
Like he literally just sort of skitters to the back of the screen as far away from the camera as possible and just oh, dies yeah. somewhere out there. I mean, he's right, been he gets... the dread villain for the entire movie, and I just felt like his he, he got such a lousy death. Oh, yeah. So I guess Catwoman shoots him with a missile off the bat cycle. Is that right? Is that what happens? I guess, yeah. She's It's it's one of those classic femme fatale noir moments, right, where the, the hero is just about, there's just no way out for the hero, right, especially because Batman doesn't carry weapons, and then right. suddenly the femme fatale appears and, you know, and, and, and shoots the bad guy. But right. with, I, I just, I just sort of felt that, that Bane deserved a little bit more. Poor Bane. Yeah. Well, it would have been nice to see his lips. Um, but so so then at that from that point on, Marianne Cotillard, Talia al Ghul slash Miranda Tate is the villain. And her goal is to fulfill the destiny that Ra's al Ghul tried to fulfill in the first movie and destroy Gotham and all its citizens. It's not that she wants power. It's not that she even thinks that she will survive. It's that she literally wants to blow up a nuclear bomb in the middle of Gotham City and kill 12 million people. Um, and so at the end of the movie, when all other avenues of defusing the bomb or negating the bomb or flooding the bomb in its chamber or when all those other avenues have been exhausted, um, Batman makes, it seems, the ultimate sacrifice. Um, and he takes the bomb on his his flying bat plane or whatever the hell it is and flies out into the bay and then it blows up in the bay and every and everyone is saved and batman sacrifices himself except for it turns out at the end he didn't he's fine he put it on autopilot but now there's another character we haven't even talked about is joseph gordon levitt who was your favorite character in the movie right who was my favorite character in the movie who's john blake um entirely new to the series entirely new to the series uh he's a beat cop um, in the Gotham Police Department. He's like the one beat cop who, well, not the one, but one of the beat cops that really believes that all along that Batman is good and doesn't believe that he's bad and wants him to come back. He was an orphan just like Batman was. Um, and he, through the movie, teams up with Commissioner Gordon to really sort of try and pick apart this mystery. He's the only one who believes that Bane is a real threat. He's the only one who believes that Batman isn't. Um, he's, he's almost the to... only idealist in the movie, period, right? Because yeah. Bruce Wayne is always this very bitter, romantic yet cynical character. And at this point, Gary Oldman's police commissioner has become jaded, too, because he's been lying to the people of Gotham for eight years and so John Blake sort of comes along and is the, is the first blast of pure idealism. Right. He's like the ingenue basically of this movie and he's played very well by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He has, I mean, he brings a lot of steel to the role. He has a lot of energy in his scenes. He keeps getting called a hothead by his superior officers um, and he sort of is. He's in, But he is like the classic cop character who, who knows something is up and is determined to dig it up even though the rest of the force is not particularly behind him. Um, and, but he at the end of the movie, um, sort of loses that idealism because he sees that that no one will ever know that it was Batman who that it was Bruce Wayne who made this ultimate sacrifice to save the city um, that Bruce Wayne was Batman and he um, he at the end of the movie were led to believe that he is the one who's going to take up the mantle at the end of the movie we see him um, uh, run through the waterfall, uh, repel through the waterfall into the bat cave. He discovers all the bat stuff. And we also learn at the very end of the movie that his given name is not actually John Blake. His actual name is? Robin. Robin. Nice so, ending, yeah. It's a nice ending. So it's being set up once, of course, again for another reboot um, with potentially with Joseph Gordon-Levitt or the Robin character as Batman, which is something that has happened in the comics from time to time, that Robin himself takes up the mantle of Batman um, and and, lead, and becomes the new, the new fighter of crime, the new Dark Knight. Um, and so it's a nice ending to the series and a nice way to bring it all full circle. We get a moment of Alfred discovering that Bruce Wayne really is alive and living happily in Florida. 
Florence. Um, and with Catwoman. Ni- with Catwoman, with Selena Kyle. Um, and we it has it's a nice ending, but that doesn't change the fact that that this is a this is for me at least, this was a a movie that just didn't have the thrills and the fun of of the Dark Knight, and that's—I mean—that's a very, that's sort of an impossible task to hold it up to. That's sort of the the niplus, the the niplus ultra of great dark, twisty superhero movies. But it did seem a shame to me, as you say, that <clears throat> that we get backstory for Bane and for Talia Al Ghul only. 99% of the way through the movie. And the, the things that are revealed about them at the end of the movie are the very things that might have made them interesting throughout the movie if we had only had hints of them or known more of them. Like that moment where where um, Bane is crying at the end from pain and sadness is like a really potent moment. And imagine how potent it would be if we had had any sense of these inner depths of him throughout the movie, as opposed to him just being this chunk of beef with a mask who beats the shit out of everyone. Right. Yeah. This is the thing I think that Nolan has has trouble balancing. I mean, I didn't love The Dark Knight, the second movie, as much as you did, although I will never forget Heath Ledger's performance in it and had tons of great moments. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like the, the whole problem for Nolan is he wants... He wants it all, right? He wants it. To, he wants pounding excitement and the constant Hans Zimmer score just pounding in your ears at every second and every possible, you know, explosion and fight and car chase and sort of visual spectacle that you could have. And then he also wants every character to have a backstory and depth and meaning. And I, I, I think, honestly, he just doesn't know how to bring it all together. Right. And I guess of all the flaws you could possibly have as a screenwriter and director of superhero movies, that's not a bad one to have. Like, I'm glad that that's his problem. But it does mean that the movies can be big sort of jumbled messes uh and this one sometimes they work perfectly as to my mind the last one did as to as the dark knight did but sometimes there's just too much crammed into too much space and it overflows and spills over and so you have a two hour and 40 minute movie that has uh, so much great stuff but also has long boring stretches and villains that aren't as great as they should be and and just doesn't, in the end, totally work. That's not to say that it's not worth seeing. It's totally worth seeing on a big, gigantic screen and see it the first weekend so that you can talk about it with everyone. But it's not its not a masterpiece, and it's not the masterpiece that I think a lot of people are hoping for, and it's certainly not the masterpiece that Dark Knight fanboys have assumed it would be from the get-go and yell at people for saying it's not. Right. I still do agree, though. I think that, you know, if you if you if you saw the first two and you want to see a big blockbuster summer movie, this more than 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 fills that hole. I just am so at this point blockbustered and superheroed out that I'm not sure I can fully appreciate this this movie's charms. Right. All right. Well, Dan, thanks very much for coming in to discuss The Dark Knight Rises with me. Thank you. And thank you to my sign language interpreter who's made this possible. (laughs) And please come spoil another movie with me soon. Both of you. Uh, We will. We will. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.